All of us are on a journey of becoming, a never-ending journey in pursuit of truth and deeper union with the divine. Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing and that our journey of becoming can be both difficult and painful. Far too often, we have not been given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson. My good friend Greg Ferrand and I are also on this journey of becoming. We are both dedicated to inviting you into our journeys and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to take an honest look at the issues and questions so common to this shared journey that we all find ourselves on. We want to genuinely seek out what it means to follow Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but rather that both doubt and curiosity are two of our biggest allies. We have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And we believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right. Well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Josh Patterson, and with me today is Greg Ferrand. All surprise. Hey, I'm back. I'm back. Here we are. How's it going? He's back. Yep, doing well, man. I'm doing well. I'm, uh, as usual, uh, excited about today's interview. I feel like uh, this is a really gorgeous blend of not only just intellectually stimulating and kind of some uh, uh, inspiring in terms of uh, new ideas and concepts, but they're not just uh, esoteric, detached uh, concepts. They really are born out of uh, the guts and really out of, uh, from the inside out, life changing. Um, uh, and so, and our author today, which we'll get to in a second, I know you got a little, we have some other intro to do before that, but our author today is a real blend of uh, an academic uh, and a mystic, which to me is a, a really potent uh, smoothie blend. So we'll get to him <laughs> in just a second. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, you know, what I aspire to be when I grow up someday. But uh, yeah, I so I wanted to share about beer camp, but also I want to out myself as a total nerd because I'm a little bit tired this morning, Greg. I didn't get in until like 1.30 a.m. Uh, because <laughs> I thought <laughs> I thought it was a good idea to uh go to monday night raw <laughs> in dc last night nice with my buddy scooter and and you know express my inner child uh wow well played it was a blast yeah it was a blast we sat so there was like actually a child <laughs> that sat next to us and uh scooter and i made friends with him very quickly he was probably like eight or nine years old and um just seeing him like be so excited you know about the wrestlers coming out and he had like his little signs that he made and, you know, every match he'd lean over and be like, hey, like, who do you guys want to win? And we're like, I don't know. Who do you want to win? And then we would just, you know, <laughs> cheer for whoever the, the kid wanted to win. So that was a blast. Um, but that's completely off topic. What I wanted the little to... hawksters out there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Yes. It was a good time. But um, I did want to 
talk about beer camp real fast and just share something that's like I think is ridiculous with it. So there's another podcast um, called A People's Theology. And uh, I believe that's the right podcast. Uh, if not, then sorry, uh, Mason. But Mason <laughs> does a podcast and he got in trouble recently on Twitter. He got he went to Twitter jail, um, which for basically he tweeted out that like he could like beat anybody in a sword drill. You know, do you remember sword drills? <laughs> <laughs> That's some yeah, solid insider evangelical conservative onward Christian ga- soldiers marching yes. out to war. Yep. <laughs> right. All that that powerful, you know, violent metaphor. Yeah, and so now at beer camp, uh, we're gonna have the only God ordained sword drill competition. So thank that's you, all Jesus. I- yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, goodness gracious! Well, yeah. So come to beer camp, guys. It's gonna be fine. You know the drill. But uh, let's talk to Bruce, Greg. That sounds a lot of fun. He's being very patient with my nonsense this morning <laughs> he is but he's but he's right there with us i could tell yeah, yeah so yes. <laughs> i'm a volunteer for jesus a soldier too many of the list of why not you <laughs> Some solid that's one of the songs tactics. i learned back in the sword drill days of the oh yeah 50s and 60s <laughs> yes <Yeah. laughs> no, nothing the the, the war based metaphors the uh, soldier based the blood based metaphor yeah there's so many so many just magnetic uh, so many attractive metaphors from that day. <laughs> They're still alive. They, they are. are. They're still rolling. Oh, goodness, they are. And yeah, jeezy crazy. All right. Well, <laughs> excuse me, Bruce. Thank you so much for hanging out with us this morning. Um, uh, listeners, this is uh, Dr. Bruce Epperly. Did I say your last name correctly? You bet. Nailed it. All right. Hanging out with us this morning. Um and Bruce, just for our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with your work, could you just give us a little bit of uh, some background information, who you are and, and what kind of stuff you find yourself doing? Well, you know, anytime you ask somebody to tell, to tell talk about themselves, I have to figure out which self do I want to talk about. Uh, the the self that I'll be talking about in an hour, hour and a half when I'm at the dog park in the neighborhood, or the self at the supermarket or the self here. But uh, for for your listeners, uh, I'll give a little brief bio. Uh, uh, I come out of the the Baptists of Steinbeck country, uh, grew up in the Salinas Valley. Uh, my dad was a Baptist pastor. Um, a, pr- a pretty solid one. We were a conservative group of people, but what I remember from the time when he was pastoring Baptist churches uh, was that he would have people come and sleep in the church and sleep in our garage at the parsonage and even peace marchers and uh, and uh, even migrant workers uh, in, in those days. And uh, But I was raised in the evangelical culture, um, you know, and and certainly came forward as we use that language in my tradition. Came forward at a revival meeting called the Roundup for God. Uh, there was a fellow, a fellow came in. It was Leonard Eilers. Uh, you know, he was about. I'm I'm almost seventy, so this was about 1961. Uh, uh, even though we believed that the evangelistic meetings were a call to repentance, it was usually between nine and 12, all the Baptist kids got up and got saved and got baptized. It just seemed to happen regardless. 
but I had a dateable conversion experience. Uh, 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 Leonard Eilers had, was dressed in cowboy regalia. He had a lasso, not like Ted Lasso, but a lasso of sorts. And he said, "Put you, I, I'm probably the only one now who remembers this song. Put your foot in the sandal, saddle, climb up on the horse. The roundup for God is on. I have not found this even on the uh, internet searches, this song. Uh, uh, you know, my, my conversion experience as a conservative Baptist lasted about three or four years. Uh, uh, we moved to the big city, San Jose, California, and under some suspicious circumstances, my father either uh, did something, was a little bit out of line, or was a little too liberal for this evangelical church. So he got fired, and uh, we moved to the big city. He ended up being a security guard for a few years in this burgeoning semiconductor industry uh, and uh, in the early 60s. And and basically, I lost all interest in that. I would go, my I'd still go to church. My body would go to church, uh, but I literally suffoc felt like I was going to su suffocate whenever I was in church service. Uh, I still was on a search. So probably about 14 or 15, uh, I began to read broadly in high school, the transcendentalists, the American transcendentalists, uh, uh, some of the Asian religions. Of course, it was the mid-60s or late 60s by then. We lived around San Francisco. I don't need to say anything more about that. Uh, you know, there used to, there was a, 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 a in the 70s, there was a, a evangelistic um, movement, a bumper sticker movement called the I Found It movement. Uh, which spawned other bumper stickers like I found it and I stepped on it and I found it and I smoked it. So I, I belong to the I found it and I smoked it people uh, and and had my well-spent youth uh, as a seeker. And, uh, you know, psilocybin, et cetera, is making its way back into, into the world now. Uh, interestingly enough, one of my students uh, is as part of a study on this, but we, you know, we were part of rhythms, riots, and revolutions, and turn in, tune in, and drop out, and all that. And but probably when I was a freshman in college, uh, I learned transcendental meditation. It was nineteen October fifteenth, nineteen seventy. I have all sorts of datable experiences, <laughs> and and that in a way changed my life. I found a practice. And two weeks later, I went back to church at a progressive American Baptist congregation. Um, there at the congregation, the senior pastor discovered, I, and I inadvertently were enrolled in the same class. He was an auditor, and I was a, a student uh, in a class on process theology. Uh, it's about 1971 or 72, I think it was 72. He discovered a theology in me and soon had me teaching Sunday school, process theology at church and Sunday school, 20-year-old. And uh, for 50 years now, I've been doing that. And uh, the other pastor, who was uh, known as Shorty because he was six foot seven, he was a retired uh, Baptist college chaplain, uh, uh, got me, he was, no, nobody could say no to Shorty. Uh, he was a guy who sat in front of the Bank of America protesting the Vietnam War. He is a, a draft counselor par excellence for people who wanted to be conscientious objectors. He asked me, me and this shyest young college student in the world, Sue, to help him with a nursing home service. After two weeks, he said, I can't do it anymore. Will you do it? 
So all of a sudden I became a preacher and uh, <laughs> and I didn't have a theology at the time, really. And I certainly, but I was with all these 80 and 90 year olds and we I knew the Baptist hymns. I knew the sword drill and the Baptist hymns. <laughs> and so it got me along the way. And then the way really made its way. I made it to Claremont uh, Graduate School after college, studied with uh, John Cobb and David Griffin, Bernie Loomer. Um, you know, some of my classmates of that era were uh, Catherine Keller and uh, Jay McDaniel, uh, another roommate of mine, and uh, Rita Brock and uh, Becky Parker, who are fairly who are fairly solid theologians, well worth the conversation. And, uh, you know, that took me into sort of a bivocational or trivocational ministry for 40 years now, as a, sometimes as a pastor, uh, alongside being a seminary or college professor, um, sometimes a college seminary administrator, university chaplain. I spent 20 years at Georgetown as university chaplain for Protestants and uh, taught medicine and theology there. And, uh, you know, that's been kind of the unfolding of my life. Uh, I write a bit. I study a bit. I'm I'm in the state of life where I can call myself retired with uh, quotation marks. Uh, that is, I don't have to earn a living, and I'm one of the fortunate ones that I was taken care of with good pensions when there were good pensions, and so I had good plans for retirement, and uh, so I'm I'm here as a grandparent primarily of my grandchildren, and I, you know, write, study, spend time with my, my wife, a Kate of some 43 years now, uh, you know, progressives also can have long marriages, too. It's not just those Bible people that are committed to their marriages. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and I, I write a bit on almost anything. Um, uh, there was a guy who in, in grad school, and pardon my language here, who once made the comment that, well, I'm going to talk about everything from shit to Shinola. Of course, nobody knows what Shinola is now. It was what you used to polish your shoes in earlier era. So if you look at my Vita, I've written about the Bible and health and spirituality, ministerial wellness, a uh, uh, number of, of scriptures, politics, uh, and theology and mysticism. So whatever I'm interested in, I decide to write about to help me learn about it. Nice. So that's a yeah. bit of a story. Well, thank you. Thank you, Bruce. That's uh, <laughs> that's a proper nutshell. And and I know with with kind of that vast from that we have the the library from shit to Shinola in terms of things we could talk about today. But one that really that Josh and I it grabbed our attention and our imagination is uh, one of your books, "The Elephant Is Running," uh, and it's process and open relational the, uh, theologies and religious pluralism. And but before we, which is so rich, and uh, again to me going through it, it's a it's a real uh, gorgeous blend of. Uh, body heart mind it's it engages all three centers as you flow through it um but you know we we love to nest uh the concepts that we discussed that we discuss in story uh and that that again we they're not just disembodied concepts but the reason you wrote this book is because it was born out of something that just as you were describing you were magnetically attracted to was flowing from a place of your story your journey your interest your life and so since this is about this uh, open and process uh, process theology like maybe go back to that moment when you were taking that course on open uh or process theology when you were 20 and all of a sudden you're teaching it uh in college what or at your church 
what was that, you know, in, in your own journey as you kind of were moving away from the conservative Baptist tradition, you were, it was mid sixties outside of San Francisco, which is very uh, open-minded space, very welcoming, encouraging hot exploration. Tub theology. Hot there's tub theology. camp theology and there's hot tub theology. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, you know, all, all nested in, in, in a haze of smoke, uh, encouraging, uh, you know, new pathways. But in that process, so t- tell us a little bit as you started moving in that direction and we're taking this course and then shifting from just being a student to teacher, what was it that was drawing? What was it that was, was there stuff that you were challenged by that you were having to discard? Was there stuff that was magnetic that you felt drawn to? Kind of explain that moment of introduction between you and process theology. Well, I think a book that was current in those days and a book that I reread relatively recently uh, that kind of describes at least uh, one aspect uh, in in the book, The Teachings of Don Juan by Carlos Castaneda, which is a very popular book on uh, uh, indigenous mysticism and the use of of mescaline peyote. Uh, He talks about a path with a heart. you know, I really, in some sense, had lost heart. Uh, the um, the religious tradition in which I grew, uh, I at the time, it's interesting. I you, over your over the, your lifetime, you recover some of it, but at the time, just it, it had lo- I had lost heart, and and because I was raised as a child, small town Salinas Valley, King City. Um, it's where you go drive through it on 101 going from LA to San Francisco, little cow town. Uh, I had I was somewhat of a child mystic. I recall having hallucinations or or visions as a child. And uh, you know, and 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 feeling that sense of the, you know, nature being alive. Uh it wasn't always encouraged in church, but it was a uh, uh that sense of the presence of God and in uh, somehow rather the smallness and the trauma of my own father's experience of losing his job, uh, I lost heart uh, with it. The re- you know, it was more important for some of those folks I grew up with, not my dad, interestingly enough, I recovered some of his sermons uh, recently and uh, he, you know, they were handwritten sermons and they, he, he was talking about life and not, not doctrine for the most part. But go, what, getting out of hell and avoiding hell was sort of the heart of the faith. And, uh, you know, and, and there was a sense I lost heart. And, and I think I f- was looking for something to hold it, to bring it together again, to become full hearted. Uh, I never uh, ever, I was studying again, as I said, Asian uh, philosophy and theology at the time. I never let go of that. I didn't, I, I didn't feel there was a dissonance. Uh, I felt I could be a Christian and and be open to this. This was when I was in college, and partly because the 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 church I was, you know, it's if the it, the church I found myself landing in uh, was a seekers type of church before there was such. Uh, the the people were questioning. They were, everything was on the table. Most of the people now, you know. Uh, the older generation were raised in the, the Grand Baptist tradition and uh, no longer found that tenable. And uh, and the, the the path with the heart, and I think, first of all, in terms of process thought, it, it's images of, of God and the world and the relationship of God and the world as being um, dynamic, connectional, interdependent, 
uh, made sense to me. It made sense to me. It's it's sense of the the wholeness and fullness of life made sense to me. Uh, and over the years, uh, I think my first conversion to that, and uh, first, first, of course, a person is converted all the time, uh, was intellectual. Uh, the the second conversion was uh, was experiential. Uh, I have, have become a in my own way, at least, the person who writes what I call lived theology. Uh, uh, that is, if you can't live it in some way or another, it's not worth uh, uh, holding as doctrinally. Uh, and, and I really had that sense that this is a path for a heart. It, it enabled me to continue as a Christian. Uh, it enabled me to reimagine. Re uh, now, in, in probably 55 years, uh, probably 15 years ago, I reclaimed the the evangelical roots, not in terms of the doctrine, but in terms of the experience. Uh, you know, if uh, uh, a lot of progressives don't talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus, uh, but the personal relationship with Jesus is, in fact, a mystical experience. He walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And and it's not just me, but it's everybody else in the universe. But uh, uh, but the sense that that reclaiming that sense of that, and my wife occasionally is irritated with me because uh, being raised a Baptist, and I'm a generation or two ahead of you guys. I was raised with all the songs, and I'll go around the house singing some of the bloody ones too. I mean, uh, she'll be uh, she'll she'll I'll be coming in from a walk in the morning singing the old rugged cross. My trophies at last I'll lay down, I'll cling to the old rugged cross, exchange it someday for a crown. I sometimes say clown, but uh, uh, you know. Uh, uh, so, you know, and, and also integrating my life in the 60s of, uh, uh, you know, that, that when you become a professional minister, there's oftentimes, an academic even, there's often constraints put on you. Uh, uh, you know, and uh, you're not supposed to have had that experience, you know, but, uh, uh, you know, I'm rereading the stuff I read in college and uh, the and learning that you, you the, all these are paths to take. Yeah, that, thank you. That's awesome. I think I know for myself uh, coming to process theology uh, actually through. So I started, you know, open and relational theology was like the gateway drug. And yep. I have uh, I have Tom Ward to thank for that. So thank well, you. Well, Tom's Tom. the best. <laughs> yes, Tom is Tom is fantastic. Uh, friend of the podcast, been on many times. Um, but similarly to to what you're saying, for me, process theology, um, like I kind of came to it both. I like how you said you had like the intellectual aspect, but also experientially you came to it, and that's what I've enjoyed about process thought is that it seems to resonate. Uh, with my experience of God and the world and the universe. And I'm a big fan of the mystics, which is yep. not a secret. Uh, I like to call myself an aspiring mystic. Um, yep. But I think process thought and mysticism plays very nicely together as well. So there's like the nice intellectual aspect from process that then, you know, goes nicely with the experiential aspect of, of mysticism and I absolutely, you know, that it's been huge for me, like probably um, if I didn't find process theology, then I, I might not still, you know, hold the title uh, Christian uh, sure. today, you know, 
um, maybe just like spiritual or something. But I, I like too what you had said uh, about lived theology. Um, I think that's really important because especially in like the, the kind of culture that I grew up in, um, you know, evangelical wise, we were, everything was about uh, having the right ideas, having the correct yeah. beliefs. And like, do you affirm the Nicene Creed or the Apostles Creed or whatever? And that's fine, right? Okay, cool. We can affirm these creeds. But if we are in church and then uh, say the Apostles Creed, and then we go outside after and treat people like shit, <laughs> then even though we just affirm the creed in church, we're not living it. We're not loving our neighbors ourselves. So the lived theology aspect um, is to me, you know, the, or the orthopraxy, like if you don't have the orthopraxy, yeah. then like, who cares what your orthodox beliefs are if you're not living them out. So, um, well, and, and that, that's one of the deficiencies of credo Christianity. Um, you know, uh, many, and, and I'm far from the first to have commented on this. I think Marcus Borg has done it as well as anyone, uh, that the, and, uh, that the creeds don't say anything about the life of Jesus. Uh, they become something that you're supposed to believe about the metaphysic of Jesus. Uh, and they create a type of uh, what later was known as a two kingdoms theology in the sense that your ethical life, as you note, Joshua, and, uh, and your credo life don't have to align themselves. Uh, uh, you can be, and I, I'm, it, I, I'm, I can pick on myself, but I've, today I'll pick on other people. Uh, you can have a very orthodox theology and, and feel quite comfortable with children being separated from their parents at the borderlands. Uh, uh, that certainly is very different from the, the way of life as the one of the one who invited the children to sit on his lap and then he blessed them. And, and I think that it separates uh, belief from action if you have to, and of course, the transactional understanding of, of salvation uh, that, that, you know, I, what is it? Uh, Christians are not perfect. They're just forgiven. Uh, that in itself is a problematic uh, notion because it just refers to Christians, but, but it assumes that we're not aiming at being better. It assumes that uh, that uh, uh, we don't have to to aspire that we can have the most hateful uh, notions and actions in our lives, and and that that's okay. Uh, you know, we can call on. Uh, I'm sure the people. You know, as a matter of fact, you see pe pictures of this: people bowing down in prayer, and then uh, storming the Capitol. Uh, and 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 saying hang Mike Pence and uh, that sort of bifurcation uh, of of theological uh, thinking. Of course, most of these people have an authoritarian theology that then leads into those kind of behaviors. But you can be a a, a criminal in the political world uh, and be violent in the political world and and just say I'm an Orthodox Christian, which. Uh, wouldn't be something that I think uh, Jesus or the prophets would sign on to. No, uh, <laughs> agreed. Yeah, and and that's to me. So I think all three of our stories, we journeyed from 
some more conservative or evangelical backgrounds with theologies, theological systems that you're describing that created some pretty profound internal dissonance between what we were taught to believe and what our experience of reality was. Uh, I think some of us, I know for me, I stayed there probably longer than I should have, uh, not because uh, I wasn't aware of intellectual inconsistencies, but I think my kind of primal need for belonging uh, yeah. kept me nested in there and, until internally my need for kind of an internal sense of integrity transcended my need for inclusion. And then I started saying, you know, I, I, I started journeying in a profoundly explorative way to find uh uh, synth synthesis and congruence between my inner and outer worlds, yes. my, my belief structure. But so, so with that, and I think all of us have been drawn now to open and relational theology, but but I think for our listener, and I know I'm sure many of our listeners are already very familiar with it, but I think, would you mind just to, to uh, summarize briefly for us the, what open and relational theology is? And then I know in your book, we really delve much more into all the many of the different facets sure. of the diamond. But if you would just nutshell what open and relational theology is for us. Well, and again, this will be my take on it. And and uh, uh, Tom Ward would say it slightly different. Catherine Keller would say it slightly different. Jay with McDaniel, who are all, and, and that's another, another part that needs to be reckoned with here in a positive way, is that we don't have to be uniform. There are many process and open relational theologies. And, and we don't have to uh, assume, uh, I think most of us agree, but we have different nuances. Don't you uh, think it'd be best if we created a creed just so we could all be on the same page of exactly what open and relational theology is? So, you know, we could just well, have a well, creed. You know, no, I'm kidding. That's a joke. That's a joke. Well, but you do know <laughs> that uh, in every field, and luckily the, the, the advantage some ways of open and relational theology, and I'm bounding on heresy here uh, in the process circles, is because it's uh, a movement out of evangelical theology in many ways, it's not having to be focused as much on precision as some of the process theologians. Uh, I mean, there, there are great arguments among Whiteheadians about how, you know, how many uh, initial aims can sit on a pen. Uh, you know, and, and for me, I guess as I get older, I'm more interested in the landscape and the in the cosmic scape of it than the fine details. But for me, open and relational process theology, uh, the key things that shape my life in it is that that God is your companion, that God is the present in your deepest self, that that God is moving along with you. And as a matter of fact, this is good evangelical theology as well as uh, I mean, the true evangelical theology, the true personal, that you can have a personal relationship with God who is moving along with you, who is changing along with you, who is living along with you, who who relates to you not as an abstraction, uh, not as a uh, a cookie cutter person, but as, as who you are at this particular moment. Uh, for me, the notion of intimacy is key, that the divine is intimate. Uh, Empathy is key, that the divine feels and lives with us our joys and sorrows and inspires us to empathy. Uh, relationality uh, is key, that we're all in relation. It's an Umbutu theology. It's a, we are because of one another. Uh, to me, it's also the notion that revelation is never stable, but re revelation is, is itself moving. 
and, and that doesn't mean we can't aspire towards some some truth, but the truth itself is a horizon that's moving. Uh, you know, and in, in the the text, uh, the elephant book, uh, elephant is running. Uh, I, I added to the original story of the elephant the sight impaired people who are grasping at different parts of the elephant because I felt that the, any living elephant is moving. I mean, you wouldn't want to be around a living elephant either on its backside or its front side. Uh, you know, you won't be around your backside because you might get some elephant poop there. Uh, you don't want to be on its front side. It might run over, you know, those the justice uh, ever flowing waters of justice could send you down the stream. Uh, but the, the elephant is moving. And, and you know, we the, so itself, we are growing along with it. Um, you know, that revelation is not is not one thing that happens at one time that's ever more going to be that, uh, that, that uh, you know, that the, the diversity of cultures and ethnicities and religions is not a fall from grace, but a reflection of the divine. Uh, you know, I can see the world from a type of Christian experience. I mean, I have a Jesus-shaped religion or a Christian-shaped religion, but, but that doesn't nullify the fact that the divine uh, God speaking with another culture in slightly different nuances and uh the and that the elephant has a shape of jesus but the elephant might also uh look a little bit like the flowing stream of taoism or the flowing stream of jainism it's interesting in this book uh um you know i i, I made the point of trying to make the book concrete by interviewing people from from the various traditions, progressive members of other traditions, and and since this book came out, uh, the one of the uh, salute select Jane, one of the, the one of the uh, the fellow of the Jane that is uh, uh, I interviewed there. He's a 85 year old fellow, one of the leading Janes in the country. Uh, you know, reached out to me and he said, Bruce, you know, we uh, we ought to do something together on Christianity and Jainism on forgiveness. Uh, the metaphysics of Jainism and Christianity are, are, are in many ways different. Jainism doesn't have a personal God, uh, and the soul has been here forever through its many incarnations, but forgiveness is key. Uh, and as a Christian, I don't have to worry about whether uh, I'm going to be in, in a one-lifetime heaven or a or multi lifetime, uh, uh, I don't because I don't know what what is ahead of me, or if anything. Uh, but uh, I can affirm that diversity of revelation and the democracy of revelation, uh, and and the sense that it, that your inner life and your outer life need to fit together. Uh, these are some thumbnails or guideposts, and that that are part of my own sense of it. That's so helpful. That's um, also all of that is so magnetic. It's 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 that gravitational pull uh, that that also I sense that resonance between my experience and and what you're describing. One of the um, uh, roadblocks or hurdles that folks have, especially maybe coming from uh, evangelical traditions, you know, of course, everyone is going to splash around at least superficially in the shallow end of the idea of omnipresence of yeah. God all around and within. Uh, and we'd all high five about that across the aisles. 
Uh, although in terms of what it really means, pragmatically, that would be a different uh, kettle of fish. But when we get to uh, uh, omnipotence, yeah. when we get into God's all powerful, uh, that there's, uh, I think for, for many of us in our younger traditions uh, or the traditions that each of us held to, there was kind of a great comfort in the yes. idea of nested in a Newtonian static universe, uh, the idea that God was in control of all. Uh, yeah. And uh, so that, of course, it creates its own profound moments of dissonance of when terrible, awful things happen and prayers are not answered in the way that we want and our worst nightmares might come true and we say, where are you, God? So it creates its own problems. But could you unpack in, in your journey kind of that movement from maybe some level of comfort in God's uh, omnipotence and all-powerfulness, and, and maybe then what the difference in nuance is uh, with open and relational theology, yeah, with the concept yeah. of God's power. Yeah, certainly, you know, I heard uh, growing up that, you know, God was in control. You know, God was in control. And and, and there's a, there is a, a sense of security to that. Um, you know, the primary theologian in my life was my father when I was growing up, and uh, uh, in many ways he held that viewpoint, but he was sophisticated enough, he was a learning minister, that uh, he recognized the problems in that viewpoint, and he, he recognized that, uh, you know, that it did have all sorts of, of issues of praying for things that, that you have no no influence on, so why bother to pray? Um, it did make God the the source of evil as well as good. It made it made almost it, it led at least to to almost saying, well, God has ordained uh, George Bush or or Donald Trump to be our our president, as many people have done who would say this. And then how do they deal with uh, Barack Obama and Joe Biden? You know, I've often think they've, uh, you know, they're, they're they've kind of uh, the sword drill is going on there. They have to have to you have to get all of it to get any of it. Uh, to me, as a pastor, it made more sense to assume that God had not caused the cancer, to assume that God had not caused the shooter to go into Uvalde or Parkland or Sandy Cook. To, to assume that these are, are things that we have a, have a role in, uh, in shaping. I, I like the notion that the, uh, from Judaism, but also I think from the heart of Christian mysticism, uh, that, that our calling is to be a companion with God and healing the world, tikkun olam, uh, you know, or, or as, as Teresa of Avila would say, we are the hands and feet of God. That, that we have a role in it. Uh, the ethics of omnipotence have been problematic, especially if you attach that to the second coming. Um, you know, uh, I think the notion of the datable second coming is to quote a famous politician, one of the great hoaxes in Christianity, uh, because it is constantly, uh, there's some meme on Facebook now about September 25th as being the day of the second coming. I don't know what that means. That's uh, right before my birthday, dang it. Yeah, well, darn it, you have to drink your beer beforehand. 
Oh, uh, goodness. You know, you have to party beforehand, go to see the wrestlers again beforehand. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting because it, it says you can't do anything about the earth. You can't do anything about the world. It says there's a comment that James Watt, who was Secretary of Interior in the Reagan days, uh, made the comment that, you know, he could open up the... Uh, open up the wild lands to drilling because Jesus was coming soon and it really didn't matter. What was interesting and odd about that is you can make a lot of money because Jesus is coming soon. And, and at one level, you think to yourself, why would you bother to make any money? You know, uh, you know, why not just get, put on your robe and go to the mountaintop so you can be closer to Jesus when he comes down from the clouds? Uh and so for me, the notion of omnipotence, it, it doesn't pass the test of pastoral care. And it and you can have all sorts of variations on the, the notion of God's power. I think you could say that that God has the beginnings and the endings in God's care and leave the details of what that means open-ended. Uh, we don't have to be theologically correct and do this. Uh, I think that that the faith traditions have, and, and certainly Christianity uh, has believed that you know that God is faithful, uh, that God's love is uh, and mercy and endures forever, uh, and that that in a way uh, uh, allows us to be confident in God's love without having to pre-program what that love will look like. Uh, that that the future, our times are in God's hands, as another hymn I remember hearing, our times are in God's hands, means not that God's controlling the times, but God is with the times and has the resourcefulness to respond to our deepest needs um, and challenge us to do things that God can't do. I mean, uh, again, I'll give a plaudit for... Uh, for um, Tom Ord, uh, I don't. I don't know that anyone has done a nicer job in talking about this than Tom and, and God can't. It's just simply a great book for lay people trying to figure it out. And I think Tom and I have shared at least a number of things in common. Uh, one is that we, uh, to quote an use evangelical language, we both come at theology with a pastor's heart. Uh, you know that if you, it, it has to be. You're, 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 and, and that was part of my career. I'd go from the, the classroom to the hospital, uh, and I'd go from having a, a, a two, two college students at Georgetown back-to-back -back appointments. Uh, one was Pettit would be, and this is a real experience uh, for doing spiritual direction. One was a um, Pentecostal who, who was trying to figure out if she was still a Christian uh, because she no longer believed what she once believed. Uh, another next one was somebody who was wondering if they had needed to exit the church because it was too patriarchal, uh, too misogynist, uh, and and realizing that the test of good theology is pastoral care, uh, and the best theologians historically, in many ways, have been people who were caregivers who who actually this was concrete. Uh, you can see this in the the difference between. Uh, uh, C.S. Lewis uh, in The Problem of Pain, a uh, very great book, but it was written abstraction. Uh, and his later book, A Grief Observed, uh, after the death of his wife. 
uh, two very different books. Uh, uh, he may not have ever let go of the notion of omnipotence, but he understood it very differently after he really had a lived experience of loss. Theology always goes wrong when it lives by its abstractions and not the concreteness of experience. Yeah, I I agree with that <clears throat> so much. Just even from uh, my own, you know, personal experience of um, studying theology, and then like having, because I mean, for me, my <clears throat> excuse me, goodness gracious, um, for me, part of my you know deconstruction journey <clears throat> was having these abstract theologies that didn't sit properly or didn't weren't expressed properly in real life and so like the i love what you're saying about the the past the pastoral care test um for theology and the i mean the omnipotence question uh is was one that was huge for me like the problem of evil yeah, and yeah. Uh, things like that so within um process having this god that is active and present in and through all things you know in every moment constantly learning and growing and working to you know weave together the most amount of good and beauty and love and you know in each moment um is such a, a a more beautiful picture to me of god but also resonates with my experience of god so yeah. it, it kind of comes together and, and i think you made a really Im important point especially uh within the realm of process something that tends to be very um, important to process theologians is the the care of creation. Yes. You know, with, with books like ecological civil, you know, ideas like ecological ecological civilization yeah. Yeah. Um, and things like that is huge because it recognizes the um interwovenness and the interconnectedness of God and creation and <clears throat> our role as image bearers <laughs> to yeah. use you know Christian language to yeah take care of the earth and to move the earth forward uh, as active participants, as the, you know, hands and feet of God, rather than just this, like, I don't know, raping and pillaging of the earth that yeah. we've been doing, <laughs> yeah. literally destroying it. We're going to wipe ourselves out. Right. Uh, I mean, John Cobb, how, when did he write, he wrote a book, like something about, is it too late? Is it too like late? That? 1971, yes. <laughs> I believe. Uh, he, people have been saying it forever. Like, come on. <laughs> right. Yeah. I remember uh, reading that in college and uh, that was a, a, probably the first uh, full-blown theology of ecology. Uh, that was a, a book type on that area. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I think again, the process thought, in its notion of incarnation and its notion of omnipresence, omnipresence and incarnation are the same thing at some level, you know, different languages for the same thing. Uh, would um, affirm that we are always relating to a world that is essentially sacred, uh, a world that uh, deserves our reverence. And, and, you know, I think it is uh, Rufus Jones, he's a, a Quaker mystic uh, of an earlier era, uh, talked about affirmative mysticism. Uh, affirmative mysticism was the, the mysticism that drew, drew you toward the world. It drew you toward the world. It was not 
you're 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 drawing back away from the world was a matter of purification not a matter of 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 moving away from it it was a matter of being able to uh treat the world rightly um you know i've had a, a bit of a relationship with uh with francis of assisi uh uh wrote a little book called walking with francis of assisi uh from privilege to activism and uh uh, the Franciscans have asked me to write another one on Francis uh, uh, for Franciscan media. But Fr Francis of Assisi, in a way, uh, lives out the notion that his notion of holy poverty uh, and that in Francis and Claire, you can't have Francis without Claire and vice versa. Uh, the notion of holy poverty is really what we would call in the 21st century simplicity of life. Uh, it's Francis himself was an ascetic, uh, and Francis struggled with his body. I happen to think that his his notion of of, of brother ass, uh, referring to the body that way, uh, what really dealt with the temptations that he had. That he was very much for the path he took. It might not be the path you and I need to take. Uh, the path he took required asceticism. Uh, he may have, he, as a young man, he was very much of a uh, they called him the Frenchman. Uh, he was very much a, a, a partier. Uh, he was very much wine, women, and song. Uh, and uh, I think he that was his sensual theology also was probably one that may have involved temptation. I happen to think, and there's a whole argument among Franciscan scholars about that his relationship with Claire was, was quite close. Uh, Claire uh, was 12 years younger. Uh, and uh, was a, a very beautiful and intelligent woman uh, uh, and was first his student and then his uh, equal in many ways. And there's a story of Francis and Claire in which they get together for a picnic. And, uh, you know, everything's on the up and up. They're very restrained people. But the whole mountain started looking like it was a blaze of fire. And people thought there was a fire there. And... Um, you know, their relationship was was uh, passionate, I believe, in a different way. And, and uh, perhaps Francis, like many of us, realized we need to be ascetic in some parts of our lives. Another word for that is simplifying or knowing what we should do, given who we are, to excel in other parts of our lives. Uh, we need to use less. We need to um, commit more, use less. Uh, be faithful to the commitments we've made. Uh, you know, my sense is that the the reverence for life of Schweitzer and uh, and Francis, using those contemporary as well as a an, an ancient 12th, 13th century character, uh, was built on the sense that this is a wonderful world, and 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 it speaks to us through through every encounter, uh, if we allow, if we open our eyes to it. You know, it speaks to, uh, again, what you were describing as the, the lack of care for the planet. Um, go ahead and, and, and drill that pipeline because Jesus is coming back. Uh, there, there was a, I remember back in the, maybe it was the 80s, a chapter written in, in one of Rush Limbaugh's books that said, uh, animals have no rights, go ahead and lick that frog. Uh, and just kind of this, this notion of separation. And, and to me, so much of the harm is born out of the subject object that I, I am separate yes. from the world. 
uh, instead of what I what are the primary uh, values tenets of uh, open relational theology that we we are there's an interconnect yes. a dynamic interconnectedness and as long as there's separation then I can abuse devalue uh, ab- gain take dominate uh, whereas if there's that interconnectedness and and but I think the the impact of that delusion of separation goes beyond just a lack of care for the world, uh, it then also creeps into our capacity to separate ourselves from others and other yes. people groups and other religions. Uh, I remember back in the, originally in the um, late 90s, early 2000s, I was ordained in the PCA, uh, which is conservative okay, Christian sure. denomination. Now now I'm a Episcopal priest, but back then, and I remember when I, you know, when you're writing, your, I planted a church and you're always writing a sermon in your head. Yeah. Uh, and I was, I was listening to the radio and I heard this great quote and I was like, oh, I've got it. I can use that on Sunday. And then it said, but it came from the Dalai Lama. And I was like, well, damn it. Uh, I can't use a Dalai Lama quote in my uh, PCA church. And I was so bummed because it was such a good quote. But it yeah. was born out of this dichotomous system uh, yeah. of who is in and who is out. Uh, and I realized I had, I had uh, metabolized this lens of waking up and always uh valuing and determining every interaction I had, every new person I would meet as in or out. Uh, and it would define my interaction with every interaction with them subsequently. And I remember feeling the prison of this eventually. And then through certain prayer and my spiritual direction, saying, good God, I want to be set free from this prison yes. uh, that prevents me from loving and being present. Uh, uh, and so, so maybe, maybe describing uh, as, as part of uh, your book is about pluralism uh, which, you know, that's a, depending on your context, that's either a celebrated word or a curse word. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but describe the heart of kind of with flowing out of open and relational theology, this understanding of interconnectedness, this understanding of evolving truth as not only is our own understanding of truth evolving, but truth itself uh, is, is evolving in present in the present moment, which is a, fucking radical concept I, that's a whole nother podcast but um yeah yeah uh but but before we get so, so describe kind of how pluralism for you is born gorgeously out of this sense of interconnectedness and simultaneous uh, evolution of understanding and truth itself well i'm not certain i could do it better than you to be honest i mean i think that uh that that i may very well be the the shadow to your light there and uh uh, but li- my own experience, I, I guess, uh, uh, is that this is just the way the universe is. Uh, this is the way God intended it to be. Uh, there is no other. And, and, and I, when I say there is no other, it doesn't mean that I, I don't have a self and that I don't have a certain sense of unique way of looking at the, the world that, uh, that the next neutrino is a little bit different than me and so on and so forth. But we don't have to be right. Uh, in talking to uh, a number of, of, of uh, more conservative people or people that are uh, in, in uh, trying to find their path, uh, you know, I, I make the comment that uh, often that, you know, this is a grand universe. Uh, how how can we anticipate that or expect that we would know everything when there may very well be a trillion other galaxies? And that's just shorthand for we can't count them. Uh, you know, when when there may be a tree and ga- there's a tremendous amount of hubris or overweening pride 
to think that you can figure it all out and to think that your doctrines can figure it all out. Uh, you know, there may be an eight-armed Jesus at that bar on the planet Dagoba, uh, you know, uh, with uh, and, and uh, out somewhere else in a galaxy long ago and far away, and that wouldn't be a problem. That wouldn't be a problem for a person of faith, I think, uh, that God is the organ of, of diversity, uh, that that God seems to love diversity. You know, God loves the, the color purple, as Alice Walker says, that uh, uh, God could have created uh, a, a unhewed world, a world of gray that... Uh, uh, but God created the world of color and 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 diversity and biodiversity, and um, and that sense of of st uh, what Bernard Loomer uh, called stature, the ability to embrace otherness and to hold to your personal center, uh, and as your personal center evolves in the context of the embracing, is in fact the religious task. Uh, uh, and this is not just religion, it's politics, it's economics, it's the the, the same dynamic of what I, a, a term I learned at Georgetown, and I, they, they've, they no longer use it, but I used it in the book, uh, Centered Pluralism, that you have a place from which you come that, that then opens up to other places, is in fact how you should respond to politics and economics as well as religion that yes, I can be uh, a traditional, and I'm not here talking about the people uh, who claim to be Republicans, and I'm not picking on them, but I'm, uh, I can be a traditional Republican and find common ground with people who are progressive. I can be a progressive and find common ground with, with conservatives on some issues. Uh, we, I may be for, I may be uh, uh, pro-choice, another person may be uh, anti-abortion, but there may be some common ground in which we can meet in in responding to women's issues, or creating a world in which, uh, as uh, Wendell Berry says, a world in which you'd want a child to be born in. Uh, you know, uh, from his Mad Farmer Liberation Front uh, poem. Uh, you know, you you create a world, and and there the, we live in a world of dichotomy when we should aim to say that there are nuances of opinion among people of goodwill. Uh, a Jane who doesn't believe in anything resembling a personal God or even a God at all, uh, as we understand it in the West, uh, can be in partnership with a Christian who, for whom Jesus is the, you know, the incarnation of, of God. And, and, and we're in partnership over, you know, the affirmation of the spirit within things. Uh, that, you know, I think the notion of dichotomies, I think that we need to think that we need to be people of goodwill and find people of goodwill uh, and pray for those that we don't perceive to be of goodwill. Uh, you know, and of course, our perce perception of people of goodwill could be our own bias, too. Uh, but uh, you know, I think it was Reinhold Niebuhr who made the comment that uh, I need to be... Um, cognizant of the f truth in my neighbor's falsehood and the falsehood in my own truth, uh, that the limitations of my position, uh, as well as the possible light within a position I don't like.
Uh, and it went back to empathy because I think one of the challenges for those of us who are progressives is to try to be empathetic with those people that we once knew as companions. Uh, you know, the fundamentalist is looking for certainty in a world of change. And the fundamentalist is, is uh, feels under attack when, uh, you know, we have marriage equalities, they feel it's attack on them. And, and it's not about, the, at the bottom line, it may not be about LGBTQ plus people. It may be, be about their sense of, look how fast the world has changed. And I don't know what, if I let go of this, I'll have to let go of that. And then what? And and uh, I know when I was a university chaplain at Georgetown, I, I'd have a lot of fundamentalist kids come in and uh, and I never felt it was my responsibility to deconstruct their faith. I felt that life would do that. Uh, uh, I felt that uh, uh, my responsibility was to listen to where they were coming from, even if they thought I was a prof, was a reprobate because uh, I was ecumenical and interfaith, uh, that I, my task was to, to be their companion in the changes and, and to gently say there's another way of looking at this. Yeah, for sure. And you, I mean, you hit on like, I'm, have written a few notes here <laughs> that I wanted to, to comment on what you're what you're speaking about the the pluralism and and the beauty of diversity. Um, a few things that come to mind. One is like when we don't have like this is a, a silly example, but I think it's it holds water. Um, when we don't have like the you know diversity or or the the pluralism, then we end up saying really stupid things about people that are doing good things that aren't Christians <laughs> Yeah, and having really dumb ideas. Like, you know, I remember talking to um, a, a pastor friend of mine who I look up to and respect. We come from very different uh, walks of life. They are very much embedded in uh, evangelical Christianity, specifically Southern Baptist evangelical Christianity. And um, asking them like, if you believe people are so bad and like that they, we can't do good without the Holy spirit. How do you explain these other people, you know, from various religions that are doing good and beautiful and amazing things in the world. And then you have to come up with some stupid bullshit answer. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, well there's grace. And then there's common grace, you know? And like one of my favorite things that I ever heard was uh, it was on this podcast, actually. Um, I had a, a Calvinist friend uh, arguing with my buddy, Dan Koch uh, from UF permission. And he made that grace versus common grace, like the different bucket kind of thing. And Dan was like, yeah, it sure sounds a lot like fucking grace to me. Like, <laughs> like it's all. Yeah. Sounds... <laughs> yeah. But uh, so there's that. But I also, I think the um, interfaith aspect is so important too. Like if, if, because there are so many different uh, religions and people very clearly hold them uh, as so near and dear to their heart and it, you know, the, from the place they, they see the world, everything, if we can't have the kind of interreligious dialogue that I think, you know, process theology lends itself so well to, then I don't see any way moving forward in the world that's going to be peaceful or, you know what I mean? So I think yeah. that's important. And then one other thing that I just think process lends itself to with, with the pluralism is uh, it helps us to get away from like an anthropocentric understanding yes. of theology uh, yes. of, or listeners people centered, um, which I think is is something that's been big for me is is stepping back and, and looking at my theology in a in a way that's like, 
people <laughs> have been in the universe for a very, very short amount of time. Yeah. And the universe is growing and expanding and it's massive. And so to assume that there was like one blip on the map from like one particular person uh, and like if you happen to miss that, you're screwed <laughs> kind yeah. of thing is just insane. Like it it doesn't make sense. And it makes it seem like to steal language from Trip Fuller that like like God has to be at least as nice as Jesus, right? Well, yeah. So yeah. And so like the the I don't know, but 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 having the the God that is active and present in and through all things, the God that is the generative principle constantly alluring us forward into more beauty and and connection and and wholeness um that kind of god is is cosmic is universal yes and then we don't have to be afraid of that god revealing god's self to other people from different religious backgrounds and perspectives like in their cultural context where they can understand and have a relationship with God like of course God's going to do that right <laughs> yeah so I but I think those are some things that came to mind uh as you were speaking there well it goes back again to to privileging a type of concreteness and privileging the the concrete experience of other people the concreteness of of wisdom that's found elsewhere I mean I think again the um Philosophically or theologically, uh, many of our more conservative friends may very well be generous concretely, uh, and in fact are. Uh, I think that the theology itself, though, is often abstract, that, you know, again, all this, uh, you know, I, I have a few, I have some connection still with evangelical circles, mostly through social media now, but uh, uh and I'll just sort of chuckle when I see things and uh, uh, there and, and, and you know, your great upsetness about uh, pagans or your great upsetness about uh, drag queens. I mean, they're going to ruin us all. Uh, you know, they'll ruin all of our children uh, if they haven't done so already. Your great upsetness about transgender people. Uh, they don't realize oftentimes the, the encounter of a concrete person who has lived through, uh, even though we now have a society that's more accepting of the, the, the gay and lesbian community, uh, still most uh, gay and lesbian folks have a moment where they struggle with being different and they struggle with how people accept them. Uh, and and that their coming out is not something they just decide to do blithely. Hey, today it's Tuesday. I'm going to wear the rainbow and come out. It's oftentimes a several year process. Uh, transgender folks, I mean, you you look at it in the abstract and you say, how could somebody do that? And then, of course, for for many of us, a lot of behaviors just are different than we can imagine until we meet someone. You know, I, I had no real experience with transgender people till I, I met uh, a couple uh, who have been married now close to 35 years. And uh, during the course of their marriage, uh, uh, Dan became Danny. He became she. They're still married. Uh, they'll be with us this weekend. Uh, and, and, you know, all of a sudden I'm dealing with concreteness. 
I don't know the science very well. I don't know, but I know that this particular person is a faithful Christian, uh, a person of high moral standards who didn't, who took many years to come to this point. Uh, and, and the failure to be empathetic to your neighbor's struggle, to your neighbor's joys and sorrows, uh, enables us, even when we can't sign on to something, to say that is a, a way of looking at life. And it's also good to be on the other side. I mean, and, and one of the things that I uh, that was interesting to me in my uh, reflections in this book was how Christians have oftentimes seen themselves as fancy pants word supersessionists, that we we uh superseded Judaism, that we're we're completed Jews, or that we're uh, you know, we've superseded them there. But to talk to a Muslim, they'll say that they've superseded us. Uh, and to be in conversation with a Muslim who thinks the Holy Trinity is pure nonsense and is idolatry, I mean, every Christian needs to get a taste of their own medicine. Uh, or even to the Baha'is, who are much more ironic than almost anyone you can encounter. They're not worried about anything, uh, but but who perceive themselves, though, as, as the the most universal of this stream that begins with Judaism and flows through Christianity and Islam and then Baha'i uh, as the most universal of the bunch, and to realize that other people see us at times as abstractions. Hmm. I mean, I've been called on more than one occasion as, as, as you know, an apostate, as, a, you know, I've been referred to in abstract things, I say, well, you don't really know me to say that. You don't know the, the story of my faith. You don't know how uh, my relationship to Jesus, uh, you know, you don't know how I got to this place. And I think some of it is the the sense of listening to stories. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm convinced that stories also, uh, 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 Mark Iaconelli has a wonderful new book. I can't think of the title right now. It just came out in the past month or so, a few months. It's a wonderful book. Mark's a good guy uh, on storytelling. It's about as good a book as I've seen. It's downstairs, and I'm not going to go downstairs to find it. But, you know, Mark, is a, his name is Iaconelli, if you know who I'm talking about. Yeah, between the listening and the, it's a wonderful book. I read it this weekend and it said, you know, it's about the story. That's why a lot of people like the Moth Radio Hour uh, on NPR, you know, on uh, it be, the stories of faith. And, and that was part of my, become part of my writing, I suppose, as I've gotten older. Uh, you know, uh, I, I have to bring myself into the writing I do. I have to write, I, I, you know, you write a book sometimes because you're working on something. Uh, uh, I have a new book coming out sometime this fall. Uh, you know, you're not in control of a book once it's, once you've give, given it to your publisher. Uh, and uh, called The Prophet Amos Speaks to America. Uh, and I had not intended to write this book, but I was walking uh, on a side street near Seven Locks Road in Potomac, uh, and I, I, uh, I heard a voice tell me that I should write a book on Amos and what he would say to Americans in the 21st century. Uh, you know, it might be called mystical writing. I don't know if it's quite up to Mother to Teresa of Avila, but, uh, uh, but 
I, I had a book that I was thinking about writing. Uh, the Franciscans had asked me, from media had asked me to write another Francis book. And I was walking in the morning and the, I heard the birds say, I didn't really think I wanted to write it. And the, I heard the birds say, we need you, we need you, we need you. I don't know if that's what they were really saying. But uh, I said, well, I better write this book then. Uh, you know, if the birds are telling me this, I better, of course, it was a book. It's a book on Francis that'll come out sometime next year. Always fresh, always new, always new beginning, which is a comment about Francis from Thomas of Salerno. But, you know, we're always experiencing our faith concretely if we encounter it. And and God is whispering to us uh, uh, in the, you know, you know, you hear God's voice everywhere, as another hymn would say, this is my father's world or parents world he god speaks to me everywhere uh that's so that's that's so powerful and one one just thread or melody that has i've, I've heard uh dance throughout all of what you shared this morning um is this driving force of you know almost the it's it, it, it it's making it too much of a scientific uh uh dissection to say this but almost the criteria for evaluating what is healthy is does it uh result in empathy love and compassion from the inside out you know and, and so and and that seems to be this driving essence that you're you're not exploring pluralism just academically uh as just you know a liberal concept but the uh means of measuring sanity reality is does it evoke compassion empathy and love and and one thing that i've really and you said this at the beginning and it's just kind of been this melody throughout um you know within the deconstructionist world it's a very natural part of uh, deconstruction and reconstruction but oftentimes you know, we've talked about this many times but once once kind of we leap to a new evolutionary lily pad in our paradigms or lens on life or understanding of self there's it's it's very easy to look at the previous lily pad with some disdain um and then of course there's the uh you know uh, evolve and include you know there's the beginning to look back but one thing that you did have done that i have not heard from many people is celebrating the beauty of those evangelical lily pads that you once hopped on um, yeah. and even taking the language of the personal relationship with Jesus uh, and not viewing it then through an exclusive uh, lens of in and out, but just then celebrating the nature of personal experience with the divine yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, and even that application. So, so to me, again, I think that really speaks to uh, an embodied representation of what open and relational theology is inviting us to. Uh, and, and, yes. Yeah, please. And, and to me, the, your, your use of the term melody is a really important one, uh, because in a sense, oddly enough, my, my reclaiming of, of the evangelical roots has come through hymns. You know, the hymns of evangelical Christianity, I'm not talking about the Holy Ghost, I love the Holy Ghost, he's the most type of things, you know. Uh, you know, the, you know those kind of songs. But uh, but I'm talking about some of those songs, at least in the culture I grew up with. Uh, uh, Great is thy faithfulness. Uh, when I had a child that was uh, potentially dying of cancer, uh, he survived and has two children. I, I had nothing. I had no prayers to make. I had no prayers. I couldn't come up with a prayer at all. 
Uh, and then as I'm walking around the hospital at Georgetown, uh, I, I, the only thing I could come up with was Kyrie, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. After the treatments began, uh, you know, the, the hymn that came to me is great as thy faithfulness, morning by morning, new mercies I see, all that I've needed, thy hand has provided. That'll preach, great is my, thy faithfulness. Lord unto me, and and I used all the all the non-inclusive language because that was the way I learned it, and and I, although I use the inclusive language as a writer and as a preacher and as a teacher, it was a heart song. Uh, the, the the it was a heart song. Uh, I think if the evangelical tradition just simply sang and didn't talk, they'd be better off. And again, uh, the best of the songs, you know. I, I mean, I could. I could listen to Glad, uh, who happened to like acapella music. I could listen to them all all day long. I've been listening to "This Is My Father's World" uh, from Glad about every day. This while well, I've been writing this uh, Francis book as as sort of a little little inspiration. You know, uh, uh, you once uh, you know you don't have to. You're here because you were there. Uh, if I had not been evangelical Christian. I might not be in the place I am today. Uh, uh, when I when I was taught, and I and I will say I have led people through my own version of the sinner's prayer. Uh, you know, somebody will come to me a desperate and say, "I just, I, you know, my soul is in jeopardy." I and I'll say, "Well, you know, do you believe in Jesus? Is Jesus important to you?" Yeah, yeah, okay, you're saved. Don't worry about it. Uh, because you don't have to be politically correct as a progressive. Uh, that's one of the drawbacks of some types of progressivism. We have to do things one way. If somebody needs to do the sinner's prayer in terms of I'm in trouble, I don't know how to get out of this trouble, I need you. I mean, I do that myself. There's sometimes there are a lot of issues I can't get out of on my own. I'll just throw myself in the arms of Jesus and say, you know, get me through this. Uh, that's why one of the reasons I think people like Anne Lamott uh, is that she's very theologically progressive, but she she realizes that sometimes she's a scumbag and uh, and just leans on grace. You have to have to lean on the everlasting arms, you know, stand on the promises and lean on the arms. Uh, mm. I, I love that. I, and, I, and it's so true, just even in my own experience, depending on what I'm going through, sometimes uh, my my uh leaning into god is 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 very br broad open wide mysterious and sometimes when the shit's hitting the fan i just need to take jesus's hand and i just am comfortable with both of those expressions in terms of my need in the moment um, and i think god comes to you the way you need i mean i yeah. think that's the one thing that the, the the you know god is uh you know the 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 specific providence for specific moments of life to sound a little white heady in here uh, the aims being the providence for that moment of life. It could be that God says, well, I'm going to show you this face today. I'm going to show you that face. Uh, I'm going to show you the other face. You need somebody to hold hands with today. You need somebody to kick you in the ass tomorrow. Uh, you know, both of them are legitimate God presences. Uh, you know, you need somebody to comfort you. You need somebody to push you out the door. Uh you need to to somebody to say, boy, attaboy, you've done really good. You need somebody to say, well, you can do better. Uh, and maybe God is the the ultimate relativist, perhaps, is God, uh, because God uses whatever means God needs to. 
to get the job done in a world where we can say no at any moment of time and then God has to retool God's plan, put a reset on and uh, and say, no, I've got to use this way. And that actually is good biblical Christianity because uh, the biblical tradition, and uh, you know, I'm one of those people who still reads the Bible in the progressive tradition. I haven't substituted process and reality for the Bible yet. Uh, the uh, uh, Is that you know, the biblical tradition is about a constant reset, a constant change of plans for God and humankind, and, and God's infinite resourceful, and that's the one thing I think every evangelical of the conservative bent needs to read the Old Testament again, or the Hebraic scriptures, First Testament, whatever term you want to use, and see that God's always adjusting God's self, and we're adjusting in relationship to the divine, and and uh, and maybe that some one day God comes to you, uh, um, you know, as that that uh, African American lady cooking pancakes, you know, and the oh, I can't think of the book now, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, the uh, shack. The shack. One day God's that uh, that African American lady. Well, next day God's the child in the manger. Uh, God doesn't. The aims, if you use Whiteheadian language, the aims can come all sorts of ways. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I love that too. I remember one of my philosophies um, when I was a, uh, still a, a, a pastor and teaching students, um, I got from uh, Bonnie Christian, uh, who has been on this podcast before. And she said this line, I think it's in, in one of her books, but she says, um, like, if there's a version of Christianity or a version of faith that somebody can accept, why would I give them one that they have to reject? And so yes. I think being able to not, you know, become a fundamentalist on the other side of the coin, you know, now that like just a progressive fundamentalist and actually recognizing, like you were saying, that if this is the way someone needs to connect with the divine, then I want to be able to offer that to them, you know? And I think God, like you said, is willing to meet people that way as well. And I forget who said it, but there's the quote, you know, God, uh, it comes to us disguised as our life. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's so true. So um, and if the, of course, that isn't an utter relativism, because there are things you have to challenge along the path, too. Uh, you know, uh, I think it's imperative for us to to uh, challenge the misuse of faith, uh, whether it's uh, somebody uh, stabbing Salman Rushdie uh, at Chautauqua, which, which is a place I was just at in the amphitheater two weeks ago, uh, and go there almost every year and uh, have worked with Chautauqua uh, to uh, the white Christian nationalists. Uh, you know, some things must be challenged and it's usually the abstraction that gets in trouble. You can still see the holy in the other and challenge when it's going to be violent, when it's going to be harmful, when it's going to be misogynist or homophobic uh, or destroy the planet. Uh, uh, you know, even they are on a path. Uh, it's often an anguished path of, of, of a yearning that we know not what we're yearning for, but we must what we're yearning, and it, but but it comes out in ways that are harmful. That's so good, Bruce. This has been uh, such a gift I, I, to me. I feel like one of the things again I value so deeply, and that uh, Josh and I value in this podcast. It, we we love gorgeous concepts but when they're rooted in story when they're rooted in heart 
uh, rooted in connection with reality, it, it is such a gift. And I feel like it just flows off of your tongue effortlessly in that expression. So thank you so much for being with well, us thank uh, you. today, this morning. It's, it's been a, a profound gift and an honor to have you here. Thank you. It's a joy. Yes, I've I've enjoyed it, Bruce, and we'll have to uh, to stay in touch and uh, well, yeah. look forward to your books coming out. Well, yeah, you know, everybody loves to to chat. You know, even the shy theologian likes to chat and uh, uh, give us a little place to talk, and we'll we'll uh, use our allotment of words in the morning. I'll have to be silent the rest of the day. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, goodness. Well, Bruce, again, thank you so much. Uh, listeners, thanks for hanging out today. Um, be sure to, to go snag a copy of The Elephant is Running. Uh, it really is a fantastic book, Bruce. I, I you know, we, we thoroughly enjoyed it. And so be sure to put a, a link to that in the show notes as well. That way people can find it uh, easily. And also quick shout out to Tom Ward. Thank you, Tom, for introducing us to Bruce. <laughs> mm -hmm. Thanks, so, Tom. Yeah, peace and, uh, peace and love, guys. <laughs>